Welcome to Cover to Cover, Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky, and the second Friday of every month is Theater Friday on KPFA on Cover to Cover, and I interview people involved in theater around the Bay Area and elsewhere, and sometimes involved with film. And uh, today we have a special treat. Uh, a year ago, I interviewed Kenneth Bowser, who is the director of a film called Phil Oaks, Their Book for Fortune, which is now out on DVD, and I thought that was really exciting. Uh, they'd sent me a copy of it, and I was floored. And for those of you who don't know Phil Oaks or who he was, he was one of the great folk singers of the early 60s, uh, compared a lot to Dylan. And you've been hearing a lot of, get on the phone right now, and you could keep doing that, but we're going to play 20 minutes of this so that you can sit back, relax, and uh, be aware that... Phil Oaks' There But For Fortune, which contains a lot of music, by the way, so it's not just a documentary. You could watch it many times. Uh, we're giving it away as a subscription premium for $120. So if you go to your phone over the course of the next 20, 20 minutes or when I'm back, 848-5732, Right now I see there are five people on the line, so you could make it a sixth. That's one 800 Four three nine five seven three two. That's one eight hundred Hey KPFA or online at kpfa dot org. But right now, let's get to the Kenneth Bowser interview about Phil Oaks, their book for fortune. Welcome to Open Book on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Kenneth Bowser, a documentary filmmaker. Earlier films include Preston Sturgis, The Rise and Fall of an American Dreamer, Frank Capra's American Dream. Writer, producer, and director of TV show Live from New York, the first five years of Saturday Night. Uh, next up, Peter Biskin's Down and Dirty Pictures is going to be a documentary. There's already been a documentary on uh, Peter Biskin's earlier work, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls. Kenneth Bowser, early on in his career, actually did direct a fiction film titled In a Shallow Grave. Kenneth Bowser, what brought you to Phil Oaks? I was a great fan of his when he was alive and I saw him perform and I owned all his records and I just loved his work. He affected my worldview, I'm sure. And so as the years went by and I got in a position where I was um, I was making films and making films about, to some degree, the cultural life of our country, Phil was always at the top of my list of someone I wanted to make a film about. And in the last uh, five or six years, basically, I became successful enough directing the history of Saturday Night Live. I started shooting. At that point, did you have financing no, for it? No, no, nothing. no. No, in fact, I started 20 years ago on the film. I, I approached the Oaks family 20 years ago. I'd made Preston Sturges, I think, at that time, at one documentary. And, you know, I, I was getting my career going. And I approached them. I told them what I wanted to do. And they liked me. I liked them. But basically, everyone said, well, what do you want to make a film about a dead folk singer for? Well, that's kind of strange because this is what biography is all about. Yeah, but he's especially, as I found to some degree, he's written out of history, Phil. Is he really? It's it's interesting. We were talking before we went on the air that when I mentioned on Facebook and elsewhere that I'd be talking with you, everybody's going, Phil Oaks, he's my favorite. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, as I said to you earlier, uh, I'm amazed by the reaction uh, to the film. I'm so thrilled and delighted to have anything to do with getting Phil, as I, Megan, uh, Phil's daughter and I often joke, um, getting Phil back out on tour. 
Phil Oaks himself, my knowledge of Phil Oaks was that he was one of the great political folk singers of the early and mid-60s, and those of us who were of the Vietnam generation, Phil Oaks ran a close second at times, and sometimes not even a close second, to Bob Dylan, whereas Dylan's career probably had a similar trajectory on some levels. He began to fade out a little bit in the early 70s. He managed to stay on the stage, whereas Phil Oaks disappeared, and this was before he died. There's all kinds of theories. Ultimately, mental illness unraveled him more than anything. The alcoholism didn't hurt. But someone wrote in one of the reviews I was reading earlier, which is probably the most succinct way to put it, that mystery always trumps commitment in terms of artistry. Dylan's work is mysterious, and Phil's was committed. I think people were more interested in kind of a, a more hidden agenda. You went in knowing the songs, mm -hmm. knowing songs like There But For Fortune, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, I Ain't a Marching Anymore, The War Is Over, Changes, Draft Dodger Rag, Power and Glory, and Outside of a Small Circle of Friends. These are the biggest, most popular songs That's that he right. wrote. And mm -hmm. for people of a younger generation, they may not have heard of any of them. But if you're of a certain generation or even a little younger, you have. We all walk in with our own impressions. So how did your impression of Oaks change by doing the documentary, you think? I think I hadn't realized how biographical, autobiographical his material was, especially the second half of the career. The first half of the career is perhaps biographical about America and what's going on at the time and what's going on in the 60s. The second half of the career from roughly 68, the Chicago Convention on, is much more interior work, much more about what's going on with Phil Oaks. And that, in so many ways, which I hope the film does, also reflected the time, didn't it? Because uh, people were there and interested in what was going on outside, perhaps so near the end of the 60s. And as we moved into the 70s, people became much more interested in themselves. I suspect that someone like Phil Oaks, as opposed to Dylan, I think would have had a better chance of being a major player later on in his life simply because when the mystery is gone or you run out of mysteries what's left is solid reality yeah unfortunately as i said he he was a, a serious manic depressive and, and without tipping the story here uh, he ultimately took his own life kenneth bowser you decided you would do it you went twenty years ago and what did they say to you then and why did their minds change about doing the the piece? oh their their minds never changed what happened was i basically i couldn't get it off the ground uh... no one was interested as you say there are people from our generation who who remember phil very fondly and he was a very powerful influence for some people but for the rest of the world they'd never heard of him and oh well, he's some guy who committed suicide and i never he didn't have any hit songs so why should I possibly be interested in him? And you also mentioned him being second to Dylan. What's interesting about that is, yeah, I would agree. He was second to Dylan and, and sometimes uh, even with him. But what does that mean? Because we don't say about Bob Dylan that he's a rock and roll star or he's a folk artist or he's a protest singer or he's a pop singer. The fact is, Dylan's managed to do all of those things. He also has worked about 35, 40 years longer than Phil, so that helps. But Phil was unique. He was a unique artist. And you asked me what surprised me most. I think that the depth of his work and the artistry 
he had moved me very much as a young man, and he moved me in a completely different way as an older man. When you're looking at the later albums, the ones that kind of trashed his career, starting with Pleasures of the Harbor and War is Over, when you look at those, or even Greatest Hits, which is about the point where I turned off, When you look at those now, do you see a greater depth of expression in those than you would have otherwise thought? Well, you know, again, it's the difference between being a biographer and being an autobiographer, perhaps. Places of the Harbor, strangely enough, is his most successful album. It sold the most copies. It was the first record he did for A&M and kind of marked his changeover from being a singer with a with a guitar in his hand to these symphonic works and later kind of country western stuff that he did. Yeah, I think... When he stopped writing about what was, to some degree, what was going on out in the world, I, I should correct that. He he did Pleasures and then Tape from California, which was when he was starting to lose the thread. He has said himself in, in interviews that he was just burning out. He was just exhausted. On the political front, had just exhausted him. And he started to turn inward and start exploring other things. And in that way... His work broadened. I'm not sure it deepened. In some ways, it did. I, he, you know, he'd been writing music for a decade, and any artists, hopefully, they get better at what they do, and their craft gets better. And I think all of those things improved, but his his point of view widened certainly. So maybe taking a second look at something like rehearsals for retirement would definitely be in order. Personally, rehearsals is my favorite Phil Oaks album. Now, it wasn't by a stretch when I started. It's a very dark album. People ask me, well, how'd you decide to write it the way you wrote it? And I didn't. I just kind of followed Phil's songs. They're more than the soundtrack. They're the, you know, practically the written words of the film because he charted not only his country's rise, but his rise. And he charted his fall and his pursuit of fame. His work gets more complex. Kenneth Bowser, working on a film like Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune. Okay, you finally decide this is the time you have the money to sit back and live off the money while you work on this documentary. Mm-hmm. Who did you approach first Did you approach Jim Glover uh, because that was his roommate? Did you approach the family? Which interviews did you do first? The first interview I did was with Michael Oakes because he was there from the beginning to the end. He was involved with his career. He was pretty much there for most of Phil's life. There were periods that he wasn't, and he was very clear, no, this is, you know, I step out from 62 to 64 or 5, whatever the year it is. And then he would tell me, and Arthur Garson took over his career, or he was working with Jim, or he moved in with Jim, and I was on the way. So he knew where everyone was, who was still alive, who wasn't, so on and so forth. He, he was able to point me in the right direction all the way down the line. Michael was kind of able to give me the foundation, and from there I was able to step out. Obviously, the person missing, the elephant in the room. Absolutely. (laughs) Bob Dylan, you approached them and nothing. Of course, we actually heard back from someone close to uh, Mr. Dylan, and I have two answers to that. One was what I heard back, which was, I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. I think he felt he was in a no-win situation. And to be fair to him, more than fair to him, 
you know, if you've ever heard him interviewed, that is not his his strong suit. The uh, Scorsese film, he wasn't interviewed by Scorsese. He was interviewed by his longtime partner manager, who had been his friend and colleague for whatever it was, 15, 20 years. And he wouldn't take no for an answer, you know. And, and he made, uh, as best I understand the story, made Dylan speak up. I don't think, you know, when he's been on 60 Minutes or the other things, he's practically monosyllabic. He immediately said, if there's anything in Ronaldo and Clara you need, so on and so forth, because Phil was originally perhaps instigated the Rolling Thunder review, and Dylan and the people involved were correct not to take him out with him, because Phil was too destroyed by that point. Some of the people you've interviewed, certain individuals, such as Dave Van Ronk, are long gone, That's right. but some others... It looks like you did, certainly P.D. Yarrow and Judy Hensky and Jim Glover. Baez Glover. A man named Michael Korolenko, who's up in, um, I, I believe, Portland, did a film many years ago, seventy, a couple of years after Phil died, within a year or two after he died, kind of a narrative, mostly narrative, with an actor portraying Phil. And he interviewed Dave Von Ronk. He interviewed Abby Hoffman, and he interviewed Jerry Rubin, and he was very kind enough to let me take a couple of moments from his interviews to use in the film. Because, as you said, those people have passed, and I have to tell you that in the seven years I've been shooting, three or four people who are in the film are, are gone. Alice, uh, Phil's uh, widow, uh, just died about two months ago, three months ago now, I guess. Sam Hood, Gene from Jim and Gene, died uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Two names that seem to me to have little to do with Phil Oaks, except in a maybe broader sense, would have been Sean Penn and Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Sean's been trying to make a film about Phil for 15 years, maybe 20. He wanted to play Phil. And there's some resemblance, a physical resemblance. And his position is that he became an actor and a director because of Phil Oaks. There's a longer story about that that'll hopefully be on the DVD. I'll put it in there. But he's a lifelong uh, Phil Oaks fan and knows all of his work. And I think he would say that some of his political commitment comes from, from listening to Phil's words and music. And Christopher Hitchens also, like you, uh, in college at, I believe it was Oxford, was it Oxford or Cambridge? I forget. I've read his autobiography. I can't remember. Became uh, also very much a Phil Oaks fan. And as he says, another thing that's not in the film, but he, he refers to Phil as a 68er. That's a French phrase, you know. And he, he loved Phil's work. And, you know, some people have taken me to task that Christopher Hitchens isn't is in the film well you know he he supported uh, going into iraq and you know to that i say you know phil loved another point of view and he loved complexity he loved john wayne you know he found no problems and contradictions in himself so i certainly wasn't going to kenneth bowser you had these interviews and you had other information the format of the movie, it does not have a narration. What we have instead are the voices of the individuals. And to, I guess, cover circumstance, we have almost like a pasteboard of both 
newspapers and photos. What prompted you to use that process, and is that the similar one you used for earlier films? And I, I would I would add one uh, thing, which is the the voice that ties it all together is Phil's. Obviously, the songs, but also his voice. For some bizarre reason, there's hundreds of hours of of radio interviews of Phil out there if you know where to find them, and we did. So I was able to have him stitch together not only television interviews he did, but a lot of radio interviews that he did. I've done uh, both ways. I've written narration. Sidney Pollack did one. I can't remember everyone who's done narration for various films I've done. And then there's times that I don't wish the overview. I'd rather be inside of it. You know, you commented about Facebook. You put his name up there and all of these people bounce back at you. Phil had a way of, and Hitchens talks about it, of kind of getting inside. You know, he grabbed people. It's very personal to them, Phil Oaks. And there's an aspect, I think, when I've shown the film around the country, and I've now shown it to thousands of people, that um, it's a kind of, uh, how do I put it? It's watching the failure of their youth, their aspirations, what they hoped, you know, the, that we all feel when we're, you know, 17, 20 years old, yes. But it was the first generation that really felt, we've got a handle on this. We're going to make social justice work. We're going to change the world. And it was crushingly disappointing to most of us that, in fact, youth doesn't win the day. And I think for many people, Phil is, if not their childhood, their young adult years. And he resonates in a very powerful way for that reason. You're listening to an interview with Kenneth Bowser, who's the producer-director of a documentary titled Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune. Who is Harold Nimer, and what is his relationship to this film? Michael Oakes was selling his archives, which is the largest music photo archive in the world. One of the people who kind of passed over looking at it was a guy named Michael Cole, who co-founded Live Nation and produced the Pete Seeger film. And is also one of the producers now of Spider-Man. He's the main producer of <laughs> Spider-Man. And not only that, Michael Oakes is, what he always says is, is Michael Cole like superheroes, Phil Oakes and spider man he's been the promoter of the rolling stones and u2 for years so he called michael and i and he said listen i hear you you're trying to make a film about phil oaks and we said yeah we we've been shooting for you know four or five years now and he said well what do you need i said well i need the money to pay for all these rights which are exorbitant and enormous and he said well i'm in i'll pay for it i was kind of taken aback and i said you know this is not the rolling stones you're not going to get your money out he said you know Phil came and played. He had a little coffee shop in Toronto. And Phil was one of the first artists to come and perform for him. And he kind of fell in love with his music and the guy. And he said, you know, I made my money. I want to pay for the film. And that's how the film got made. Nimer was his lawyer. Kenneth Bowser, let's do a quick summary of, of Phil Oaks's career. He grew up and wound up going to Ohio State, went to a military academy, studied journalism. In 1962, dropped out of school came to New York, got married within a year, and began playing in the village. Is that about right? Yeah, I think it was maybe late 61. He won a guitar on a bet with uh, Jim Glover that John Kennedy would beat Richard Nixon. That's when he picks up a guitar and combines that journalism background and, and his love of music because he was played clarinet in high school. If that's not the start to the 60s, I don't know what was. Someone said at a screening the other day, he's the Zelig of the 1960s. And I think that's true, not only all over America, but all over the world. He's in South America. He's in South Africa. He's in, in the Far East. You know, he, he got around, Phil. 
his rise was actually very, very fast. He comes in late, as you say, late 61. Within a year, he's got a record contract. Within four years, he sells out Carnegie Hall. But by the time that had happened, he'd already had a couple of albums. And a lot of people were listening to those albums. You know, songs like I Ain't Marching Anymore or uh, There But For Fortune. Yeah, yeah, and John Baez had had, she had his one hit. John Baez performed the song and 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 it was top ten hit in England and it did very well here and it's been recorded by, you know, fifty or sixty people I think. Changes I think has been almost a hundred people have recorded that song. Is the reason that you called it there, but for fortune because of the popularity of the song? Uh, no, it's what happened to Phil. It's what happens to all of us. I think it was a better metaphor than I could come up with. He becomes very political, which kind of sets him apart from Dylan. He carried around a notebook of newspaper clippings, and he worked off those? Yeah, he, he read the paper every day, all the papers, and he would just, as he said, you know, you just pick up a paper there was, and especially in the 60s, there, were, there was a lot going on in the country. Someone said to me, and I think this is true, to some degree in the music industry, the very early 60s and into the late 60s is the renaissance. And, and I often compare, you know, the whole Dylan Oaks thing is, in my, my glib references, you know, imagine being Marlowe in the time of Shakespeare. And I think that's probably, in some ways, an accurate side-by-side -side comparison. The 60s were a renaissance in so many ways, and they were a renaissance for music. Something happened that probably won't happen again for various reasons. The way the electronic network had closed, the way we were able to communicate. I mean, we were all stunned. There were guys with Liverpool, Liverpool, however you say that, accents talking to us. You know, it was now no one, you know, you got a French accent or you're from England. It doesn't impress anyone. You know, I can remember seeing a, a broadcast from England live. I mean, it was like amazing, you know, and and the music industry was changing in that way. Phil was a crazed Beatle fan, you know. Phil Oaks. Uh, we're an open book. I'm Richard Walensky, and this is usually the theater day for open book. But today, uh, the special interview with Kenneth Bowser about the film Phil Oaks There But For Fortune. I did the interview last year when the book, when the film came out, and I was always hoping to come on the air and talk about the DVD. It was so wonderful. Uh, it just just listening to this brings up a lot of memories and feelings for me um for those of us who grew up in that era and if you didn't uh it 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 puts the era in perspective he he was really a man of his time and a lot of the things he said then are still true today you can get a copy of that dvd which you can watch and listen to the, all the music on it by going to your phone and subscribing to KPFA. This is a great time to do it during Open Book uh, Arts Programming on KPFA, 
KPFA 8485732 1-800-Hey KPFA uh, 1-800-439-5732 or online at kpfa.org for a subscription of $120, you can get the DVD, but for a subscription of $25 or $50, you get a chance to subscribe to KPFA, listener-sponsored radio in northern and central California. We've been around since 1949, and hopefully we can be around for another 50, 60 years, whatever. But the only way to do that is with the support of our listeners, and that means you, 848 KPFA 84857 39 1 800 439 5737 a lot of amazing, amazing artistry in the Bay Area going on right now. Uh, again, 848-5732, 1-800-439-5732. There's one person on the line for $120. You can get a copy of Phil Oaks there, but for fortune, for $25 or $50 or $75, whatever. Uh, you can also subscribe to KPFA and help keep listener-sponsored radio alive so that we could play Phil Oaks. You're not going to hear that anywhere else, trust me. Nowhere else will you be hearing Phil Oaks. And nowhere else, actually, do you get to hear the kind of interviews I do on Fridays, which are interviews with people like John Fisher of Theater Rhino, whose upcoming show is titled Ishi, Last of the Yahi. He's a political writer. Uh, political playwright and director. That's going to be at Zellerbach Playhouse March 2nd through 11th. And you can find out more about it by going to tdps.berkeley.edu. And I've talked talked to John a few times, and he's political, and he won't be heard anywhere else except KPFA, just like Phil Oaks won't be heard anywhere else except at KPFA. Lots of good theater, lots of good art going around, and you rarely hear, what you get is Entertainment Weekly summary capsules everywhere. You don't get in-depth interviews like you do here, like I do on, um, on Book Waves and on Open Book like uh, C.S. Sung does. He's talked to several people on uh, Against the Grain from Berkeley Rep. Berkeley Rep, uh, what's their latest show? Ghostlight. I interviewed Tony Tacconi, who's the artistic director of Ghostlight, an amazing political play about Jonathan Moscone and the assassination of George Moscone. And that's playing still through February 19th. You can find out more at berkeleyrep.org. This is the kind of stuff that only KPFA does. And that's why this is a good time to support KPFA. Once again, phone numbers are eight, locally 848-5732, out of the area code 1-800-439-5732. For $120, you get a copy of Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune, that marvelous, marvelous documentary. You just heard the director, Kenneth Bowser talking about. Afterward, Kenneth and I wandered around Berkeley together. He's married to Amy Irving. I thought that was pretty weird, pretty interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> Phil Oaks there, but for fortune for $120. Some other stuff going on around the Bay Area. I mean, amazing. This, this really amazing uh, punk rock slacker show called Jesus in India by a young uh, Asian-American playwright called Lloyd Suh is at the Magic Theater 
uh, through February 19th, and I saw that last week, and it's talk about an original voice. Wow, unbelievable. That's You can find out more by going to magictheater.org. There's no one on the line. Let's get another three calls right now for Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune, for $120. You can get a copy of the DVD. For $25 or $50, you could su- subscribe to KPFA. Uh, I have two minutes left, and I just also want to <laughs> mention Boxcar Theater, a small theater company in San Francisco, doing shows True West, Berry Child, Lie of the Mind, and Fool for Love by Sam Shepard. Amazing, uh, through April 26th. And Carrie Perloff of AC2, I've interviewed several times and will interview this fall again, this spring again on um, Open Book, a show called Higher that she wrote at Zeeum. You can find out more about that by going to act-sf.org. There's one person on the line and one minute to go. Please subscribe to KPFA. Subscribe to arts and theater programming on KPFA. And I do the theater theater shows uh, second, well, sometimes two times a month, as well as book programs every Every Thursday, 8485732, 1-800-439-5732. We have one person on the line. Please support KPFA. Let's get one more person on the line. Uh, I got a couple of people to thank here. Cool. Barbara Whipperman, uh, thank her. And Devin Carlson, thank you. And thanks, Barbara. She's an old friend of mine. 8485732, 1-800-439-5732. And we have how much time left? 30 seconds? Less than that. Uh, if you want uh, to hear more of the interview with Kevin Bowser, you can go to my website, bookwaves.com. The interview is about 35 to 40 minutes long, and you can listen to it streaming. Uh, you can also go to my Facebook page, Bookwaves with Richard Walensky, and press the little like button. There are two people on the line now, and we have about 10 seconds to go. You're listening to KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno. Once again, 848 1-800-439-5732. KPFA.org, and for the next five or ten seconds, you get a copy of...